I wonder if some of you have ever been in court. Have you ever been in a court and had to take part of it in a trial? It's the most interesting kind of experience to be involved in that. So this morning I'd like to take you back 2,000 years and involve you very quickly in a trial. In fact, we get to read the transcript of this trial. If you have a Bible this morning or follow on however you follow me, John chapter 18, verse 29. You turn to that please, John chapter 18, verse 29. And here was the transcript of a trial, one of the most important and significant trials that you ever find in history. John 18, 29. So Pilate came out to them and said, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, We would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, he objected. Then John tells us in a brief parenthesis, This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went inside the palace and summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate asks an absolutely classic question. What is truth? If you ask people, I think maybe 50 years ago (coughs) or so, What is truth? They might have said things like, well, truth is following the Ten Commandments. Truth is what the Bible says about our lives. Truth is believing in God. Truth is following the golden rule. Fifty years or so, I think there would have been a, a general recognition, a consciousness of truth, requiring an acceptance, an acceptance on a point of reference outside of the human experience. People would generally have believed in God and the Bible and those kinds of things 50 years or so ago. But if you ask people today, what is truth? The answers would have changed, I think, very radically. Truth is, well, it's whatever you believe. Truth is individual. Every person has to decide what is true for themselves. Truth is simply, someone said, truth is what works. We call this pragmatism. Somebody else might say, well, there's really no such thing as truth. You just believe in whatever you want. Finally, someone says, I don't think any religion has a hold on the truth. Because all paths really lead to the same truth anyway. It seems in our day that the first casualty of pluralism is in fact truth. This external reference point of truth in God. External to the human experience has all but vanished in our culture and in our time. There is a growing collective consciousness that says truth is relative. Whatever is right and wrong for one person is not necessarily right and wrong for another. Relativism says that truth is not fixed and is not determined by some external point of reality. And more certainly not by God. But rather truth is decided by the individual. Are you, or you, or you. Or truth is decided by a group of people. 
simply to meet their own needs. So we say the truth is always changing. Not in the small matters of taste and fashion. But people would say truth is changing in the matters of morality and spirituality and even reality itself. So we're witnessing in our day you need to recognize if it has not already happened the complete abandonment of truth. In the death of Christendom, which we're in, that by the way is not the death of Christianity, the death of Christendom, we have witnessed the death of truth in public life. John Newhouse, a Catholic scholar, calls this, he says it's the naked public square. By that it means that public life is almost devoid of truth. This slow, steady demise of truth has really been kind of like snow melting. You never really notice it happening until it's pretty much all gone. And it filters down in our lives and takes its toll on society. So we live in a day in which many people have consciously and some unconsciously have suppressed the truth. So what Romans says to us in the first chapter, it says people suppress the truth in wickedness, wanting to be free from moral restraint and ethical responsibility, they push the truth down. So it's against this backdrop in which we live that we need to hear one of the most profound statements about what Jesus says about himself. When he says, I am the truth. Through these months from Christmas to Easter, we're following through um, some of the I am statements of Jesus. We printed and published a study guide. Because along with that, we really encourage you to get one and read along with us, please. <coughs> and prepare with us Sunday by Sunday. So Jesus says, I am the truth. And I have a sense that as soon as we hear that word truth, our first instinct is to make a kind of list of the kind of things that we believe. Truth is kind of essential doctrines. and You've got to get your pan out and take them all off. But what I want to say to us this morning is the truth is much more than learning lists of correct facts and signing an agreement. Christian truth cannot be reduced to a formula. It's more than simply believing the right stuff. What we accept or will not accept. Rather we bring our lives to the truth and see how truth will shape and mold us. When Jesus says, I am the truth. He's calling on us to see every aspect of our lives, the whole of life, through the lens of who he is. Not distorted by pragmatism, or relativism, or anything else. Seeing all of life through the lens that Christ is the truth will take us this morning far beyond simply saying some things are true. They will ask of us, can I really handle that truth? Do you remember this clip from Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson? I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Remember that? I was thinking, um, there's a lot of similarities between Tom Cruise and myself. <laughs> well, for the first thing is, we have the same initials. TC. <laughs> I have to work on what some of the other things are, but never mind. We need to grasp this morning, when we say we believe in the truth, it's not just having a list of Christian doctrine facts that we tick off, say, I believe in that, I believe in that, I believe in that. It's much more than that. We really need to ask ourselves, can we handle 
the truth. For instance, we say that we believe in Christ's birth, but can we really handle the truth of the, of the incarnation? And Edmund talked about that this morning, introducing that lovely new song. We believe in Christ's birth, but can we really handle the truth of the incarnation? We celebrate the story of Christmas with the belief that God came in the flesh. His seed, his sperma, John calls it, impregnated the womb of a virgin. And all of history turns on that. The Gospel of John puts it in the most breathtaking way. He says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that's good doctrine. And we confess that to be true. We say that we believe in that. But can we really handle the worldview, the way of living and thinking that flows from the truth of the Incarnation? It demands much more of us than simply believing in the events that took place in a stable or a cave 2,000 years ago. Rather, it brings all of our lives into that truth to live and change us. You need to grasp with me the phrase, the Word became flesh demands that we first of all lay aside a dualistic way of thinking. The early church, and even many Christians today, have been far, far too much influenced by the Greek philosopher Plato. And Plato thought in terms of dividing life into, into two realities, two parts to ask. That's called dualism. So, <coughs> in our dualism, we tend to think of life as being, well, there's sacred stuff and secular stuff. There's spiritual and there's physical. There's contemplation and there's action. There's prayer and activity. There's faith and there's works. That's part of the dualistic thinking that we so easily fall into. And we almost unconsciously create a two-tier kind of spirituality. For example, I think many of you would probably think that what I and other pastors and missionaries do is frankly much more spiritual than your daily jobs. And therefore what I do is more important. After all, I'm doing spiritual things. You're doing ordinary things. I have a calling, but you have a job. Many people would think that. Can I tell you this morning, that is dualism doing its deadly work in us. When Jesus said that he's the truth about life, he meant that all of life and the word became flesh. That dualism has to end. In the truth of the incarnation, the word became flesh. There is no longer sacred things and secular things. There is no longer callings and just jobs. The word became flesh. It means that the word impregnated all of life. And now all of life is to be lived out to the glory of God. It doesn't matter who you are and what you do. This is the worldview that flows from the Incarnation. It means that you need to pray about your job just as much as I do about mine. You have to live your job as I try to live mine to the glory of our God. You are as much a minister and a servant of God as I am, any pastor. It is this fusion of the Word and the flesh, spirit and body, ends a false dualistic way of thinking. The Incarnation now means that all truth is God's truth. You might know the name William Wilberforce. He's a name that we connect with the abolition of the slave trade out of Great Britain. And that led to a number of efforts to really change the entire world. When William Wilberforce was 25, he became a Christian. 
And he thought, frankly, that if he left his job and left Parliament, he could do much more work if he became a minister and a pastor. And he assumed, as millions have done, that spiritual work was more important than secular work. But a friend wrote to him about that, and challenged him and persuaded him that God might want him to stay in politics in the Houses of Parliament in Great Britain, and stay there and work there. So he did that. And he worked in the Houses of Parliament in Great Britain right up to his death to end the slave trade. And that is what he did. He didn't go into the ministry. He stayed in Parliament and worked to end the slave trade. The person who wrote to him and persuaded him not to enter the ministry but to stay in Parliament was John Newton. And John Newton, you remember, was a former slave captain, the one who wrote Amazing Grace. The point is, That every job and all of life and every task, no matter what we do, if we think in terms of the incarnation, the word become flesh, that is to be seen as a calling from God. That's what moved the Dutch Prime Minister, Christian Abraham Cooper, to declare, there is not one square inch of this entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. It is the truth of the Incarnation that reaches into every corner of life. And God sets His seal on it. So every Christian has to live out the truth that all of life is to be lived to the glory of God. I think sometimes there's a terrible grand misconception that we have to do exceptional things for God to be noticed and impressed by what we do. That's not true. We simply have to be exceptional in ordinary things. To be holy in ordinary ways and days. The incarnation means that God and we have to reclaim territory, whole tracts of life that were originally God's. But they're being stolen from God or in our carelessness, we have simply given them away or abandoned them. That means areas like music and art and history and science and public life. God wants to walk the streets of these areas. And we need to walk with them. All of these things belong to God. And in our shallow, dualistic thinking, we have given many of them away. The incarnation demands that we take them back. And the question is, can we handle that kind of truth? Can we handle the truth of integrating Jesus into every part of our lives, the total fabric of who we are? So that we think and we live incarnationally. Can you handle that kind of truth? Here's another aspect. Another example. We say we believe in Christ's death. But can we really handle the truth of the cross? At the heart of our evangelical faith is the death of Jesus. We believe that Christ died for our sins. There's no way around that. The cross stands on the heart and the core of our faith. It's how we come to faith. Grace and mercy lead us to the cross. We call people to the cross. But can we handle the truth of the cross? Really? Some examples. The cross means the truth, the truth in our lives of becoming righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is a verse you should know and underline, memorize, whatever. God made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that, here's the the reason, the result of that, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Marvelous verse. Can, Can we handle the truth of that enough 
through the cross to know that God is at work in us, making every part of our life righteous, just as He is. Another example, the truth of sacrificial love. A word for husbands, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for us. Can I say this morning to every man who is married, and you hear this morning and you believe in that verse, you believe in the truth, and you would sing the truth of the cross, can you handle the truth of sacrificial love towards your wife? Because that is what is embedded in the heart of the cross. Can you handle that? Another example. The truth of forgiving love. Forgive one another, says Paul. Just that God in Christ has forgiven you. Um, I think it's tragic when we see Christians who believe passionately. They would say, they would sing in the truth of the doctrine of the cross. But they refuse to give up anger towards someone else. And forgive them. They hold the death of Christ as true but they are living far from the truth of its power in their lives. question is, can we really handle the truth of the cross and all it demands of us? You see, it takes us far beyond orthodoxy into sacrifice. It asks of us, not only do we believe that Christ died on the cross, but it asks us to practice the sacrifice of the cross. Can we really handle that truth? In the beginning of the 1900s, Great Britain was still striving to set its flag on all the parts of the world that were still unconquered. So the sun did not go down or stand on the British Empire. One of the parts of, of the world that was still not conquered in the early 1900s was Antarctica. And so in 1900, an explorer called Ernest Shackleton ran an ad in the London newspaper inviting people to join his expedition to go and to conquer Antarctica. Here's what the ad said. Men want... Sorry, ladies, there was a day of madness, okay? Don't blame me, just... Men wanted for hazardous journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. That's what Shackleton's ad read in the newspaper. And he thought very, very few people would respond to such an ad. But guess what? Many, many did. And Shackleton wrote, it seemed that all of Great Britain wanted to accompany me. Perhaps at times we are afraid just to see how high the cross sets its demands on us. Truth is much more believing in just Christ's death. It's the one who is truth who also says to us, take up my cross, come follow me. It's a place of submission, a place of surrender, a place of sacrifice. It's a place of obedience. The cross is a greater place than Antarctica. It is the call to follow Jesus. The question is, can we handle that truth? Another example. We say that we believe in an empty grave, but can we really handle the truth of the resurrection? The life and mission of Jesus hinges on what happened after they took him down from the cross. Several days after his execution, his friends came to find a body, and the tomb was empty. What had happened? For 2,000 years, the church has sung and worshipped and taught and declared that the tomb was empty. 
But can we really handle the truth of the resurrection? You see, the truth of the resurrection created people, and it creates people today who, for example, again, live out of boldness rather than fear. (coughs) One of the hallmarks of the early church was the fact that it created people whose lives were marked with boldness. The fear and the apprehension that sent them scurrying away into the darkness of the streets of Jerusalem brought them back again out into the light of confrontation. They were no longer afraid to face people and to declare what they believed. It changed them. The truth of the resurrection creates people of purpose and mission rather than being lost in self-interest. One of the great tragedies of our modern society is that we have so much to live with and yet so little to live for. Pragmatism robs life really of its purpose. Capitalism, with all its drive and energy, fails to answer the question for us, why am I here? What Tolstoy wrote about science could be applied today to many philosophies. He wrote, science is meaningless because it gives no answer to the question, the only important question, which is what shall we do and how shall we live? And the place we find and the answer to these questions of meaning and purpose lies in the person of Jesus who holds all of life together. And the resurrection creates people of hope rather than people of despair. For so many people, it's tragic in a place like North America. It was announced this week in the newspapers that Vancouver is now the second most expensive city in the world to live on. With all of this kind of stuff, just behind Hong Kong, with all of this, for, some, for so many people, life is simply eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is the final whimper of existentialism. This is the last line in the song of despair. But for people like us who embrace and follow Jesus as being the truth, we are people who are called to live with hope to live, and especially hope to die. I've been a pastor for about 42 years, and every time I stand at the, beside the dark slit in the ground as a, as a loved one or a friend or my parents, whatever, I've been lured into that. We do so as people of hope and the truth of the resurrection. Every one of us needs something for which we will live, and something for which we're willing to die. We need a cause which is bigger than who we are. And without that, we may find that our lives tragically have little meaning in this city. Jesus knew that his mission and his life when he said before Pilate, You are right in saying, I'm a king. In fact, says Jesus, the reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. But truth is not a philosophy for philosophers to argue about Truth is not going to be suppressed by Nietzsche or Hitchens or anyone else. Truth is not just a doctrine waiting for our agreement. Truth is not just a system of belief waiting for us to take it off line by line. The purpose of truth is not to explain the world. Rather, the purpose of truth is to change the world. Truth is the energy and the power for people whose mission and task is to change the world by changing the very way that people think on how they live. You see, truth is the fuel of Christianity. And he asked the worship team to come back. Would you stand with me?